Welcome to Navigating the Next Normal. I'm Mike Gordon, the CEO of Altus Group. I hope that you and your family are doing well and perhaps even finding a way to prosper in these challenging times. A crisis typically speeds up what was going to happen anyway. After the longest CRE expansion anyone can remember, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed forward multiple disruptions to business as usual that have been coming for years. The crisis is exposing who was ready for change and who wasn't, especially when it comes to leveraging technology strategically. The winners and losers of the next cycle are being determined by how well companies are positioned to adapt today. These are just some of the themes we will be exploring as part of our new podcast series. In the first episode, Scott Morey, Executive Director of 111 Advisors, and Tom McGee, President and CEO of ICSC, will engage in a candid discussion, sharing their insights as to the state of play in retail. With the retail segment facing tremendous change and uncertainty already, the pandemic has pushed more leading retailers into bankruptcy and shut down the services and entertainment-oriented tenants who were supposed to have been immune to disruption from the internet. In this context, Tom brings a unique perspective on the new normal for the retail segment with his professional services background as vice chairman at Deloitte and CEO of ICSC, the leading industry association for shopping centers. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. This is Scott Morey with 111 Advisors. Very happy today to have Tom McGee, who is the president and CEO of ICSC. So Tom, thank you for being here. You are your lovely home in New Jersey. I'm in my office in Chicago. So unfortunately, we're not able to do this in, um, in person. So obviously, there's a lot to talk about when we get into retail. And when you look at all the asset classes, certainly not even just in the current environment, but over the last several years, uh, it's been experiencing a shift, some of it in perception and some of it in reality, right? Because there's some innovation and things happening in the space that is changing the way people shop. It's still in my view, kind of the fundamentals are still there. So I just want to go through and 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 talk about that and get your opinions both in the past and day in the future. And uh, given your background, you know, I'm sure we'll have some great insights. So thank you again. Happy to be here. Look forward to the conversation. So I know you grew up in California, I believe Los Angeles, one of five kids, Irish, not surprising, right? It's all good. <laughs> but can you talk, and I know you ended up at Loyola Marymount in, um, I think you started there in 85. Can you just talk about sort of your upbringing and, and what that was like, and then ultimately like what got you into, you know, choosing to go to Loyola? Yeah. So um, I grew up in L.A. County uh, in a town called La Puente, which is uh, east of downtown Los Angeles. I was one of five kids. I was the fifth of five kids. My parents, um, first generation American, my, both my mom and my dad, and actually my older brother, uh, who's, who's since passed away, were um, immigrated to the United States. Uh, you know, my parents were, uh, neither of them graduated from college. Um, you know, limited education, but uh, really fostered in us a real uh, work ethic in the sense of, you know, you work hard, do the right thing, and good things will happen. And so, um, you know, we focused on that and, of course, education. And, you know, they were a big believer in that. So, you know, I played sports throughout all of my formative years, 
basketball, baseball, football, all of them. I won't say I was great at them, but I played all. I went to Bishop Mott High School. And for those of you that are familiar with the L.A. area, that that was and still is a pretty uh, prominent football school and athletic school uh, in La Puente and uh, met my wife there. I actually, my wife was my high school sweetheart and we ended up marrying and now, you know, have two lovely daughters. Uh, but yeah, I'm in Los Angelino uh, through and through, although I live on the East Coast and I love the East Coast uh, quite a bit. I like Jersey and I like uh, New York a lot. I like L.A. even more. Uh, I like <laughs> like I like the weather. And um, to, to your point, I ended up at Loyola Marymount and, you know, Fish Mott's an Irish Catholic kid. Parents are, you know, very much about education, but to them, education means you go to a Catholic, you know, Catholic high school. You, you must need to go to a Catholic college. So all five of my kids ended up going to a, a Catholic university in the L.A. area or Southern California area. And I went to Loyola uh, and, uh, and actually studied accounting there and uh, graduated there, got my CPA and ended up working at Deloitte uh, for, for 26 years. So. I believe you grew up in LA and you and I are pretty close in age. So as a Lakers fan, it couldn't have been better, which I was a hardcore Lakers fan. Actually, until they traded Shaq, I swore I'd never watch a game again until the bus family sold the team. So it's been quite a few years, but I think you're the same way. But the, the question I had actually is I read somewhere about your older brother influencing you and in going the accounting route, right? Which was what your degree. Can you just sort of expand on that? Yeah, so uh, I have, I was one of four boys and one sister. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my older brothers, Mike, uh, was a, you know, he was an accounting major at the University of San Diego at Ernst & Young. It was called Arthur Young at that point, Ernst & Young. He was eight years older than me. And, you know, growing up in a relatively, you know, poorish working class family, getting a job and having a career and so forth was front and center. If I'm going to go to college, I need to have a job when I graduate and know what I'm going to do with my life. And accounting seemed like a very stable, you know, respectable thing to do. And and Mike was doing well there. And so I said, well, I'm going to do what he does. And so I ended up uh, becoming an accounting major. Quite frankly, I, you know, that was a enormously beneficial thing for me to do in so many different ways. Obviously, just learning the profession of being an accountant and understanding finances and financial statements and, um, you know, helping uh, educate me in that. Um, But also just the aspect of, you know, joining a firm like Deloitte and uh, well, all that that did for me in my career and really, you know, made me a professional. It kind of taught me how to um, behave in a, in a, in a professional world in a corporate world. Uh, as a service organization, you know, the, the people are where, where all the investment dollars go, right? So, um, you know, I spent 26 years there. I, I'm, I've probably been in more board slash audit committee meetings than I could count. I mean, thousands of those types of meetings at all different levels of my career, um, you know, worked on multiple different types of transactions. You know, I was an audit partner growing up, and then I, I was an M&A for a period of time. Uh, I worked on consulting projects. I traveled all over the world, all by the benefit of the firm. And for, you know, a kid that grew up as a first generation American, and that was pretty cool. Um, and I, you know, I don't take that for granted. And, and that, you know, experience, those foundational experiences, all the all the challenges that you go through, all the learnings that you go through, you know, I, I apply them virtually every day in some way, shape, 
form as I, you know, approach what I do now at ICSD. But that was, you know, that experience of 26 years there, as I've always often said to people, you know, I'm not retired from Deloitte. I'm not a legally a partner at Deloitte, but I'll always emotionally be a partner. I, I love the firm and all the people that I worked with there and all that it did for me. Well, I mean, ultimately getting to vice chairman is no easy task, right? And it's quite impressive in those 26 years. I was an Anderson guy and then ended up at a firm, Kenneth Leventhal, that earned the young guy. And then I was getting pushed to the Capgemini side, which is when I got out and ended up, no offense to Capgemini, ended up joining a, um, a client. So what in 2015, so you're vice chairman of Deloitte in 2015, I would argue uh, we've had a couple cycles in retail. I think about the late 90s with dot-com and he had... Um, Jerry Yang of Yahoo, right, on the cover of, it was Newsweek. I actually have a copy of it and had a monograph that says Malls Aren't Dead about five years ago, funny enough. But it said Malls Are Dead. And, of course, he wrote through that cycle. It was fine. 2013, to me, was kind of the next shift. And that holiday season, it seemed like post that holiday season, a lot of discussion around the impact of online and the thought that it's going to take over, you know, physical retail, which we'll talk about in more detail. But in 2015, retail was not... It was a challenged sector, not to the extent that it is now, but you know, what made you decide to leave Deloitte and and accept that position at ICSE, given your great career that you've already had? Uh, you know, I think it was just a confluence of events. I mean, I wasn't looking to leave, uh, first and foremost, but I, a good friend of mine um, was actually leading the search, um, a guy at Corn Ferry that, you know, I knew I had a relationship with Corn Ferry that founder of Corn Ferry, Richard Ferry, was a client of mine back mm. in Southern California, the audit committee chair of one of my clients. And so I was always, I knew people at the firm. And when I moved to the East Coast, they were, they kind of showed me around, they introduced me to different people in the community. And so when Tony called me, uh, he said, you know, it's a great opportunity. I think you'd be perfect for it. And I said, nah, Tony, I'm not really interested, but, you know, one thing led to another. And as I just kind of had the conversations. I explored, um, you know, the role and understood the role uh, in the organization and the industry. I think a couple things. You know, I'd done what I did at Deloitte for 26 years, and it was wonderful. But you know, I thought, like everybody, you, you sometimes wonder, you know, what else can I do? Uh, yeah. Is there another challenge out there? Another opportunity out there? And so I, I learned that I was open to, you know, change and. And exploring something different so that was one of them and then secondly you know i kind of look at things a little different sometimes and i what i saw was an enormous industry that was not well understood you know by people as a, the general public and quite frankly i think you know even the investment community didn't quite understand it i saw that there was a lot of change that was going on um i kind of got excited by that level of change i, I didn't see the industry and i still don't in in any way, you know, fundamentally going away in some dramatic way. I, it was going to have to change, but given my experience, you know, with clients and helping them navigate, you know, change and so forth, I thought, well, that would this would be a chance for me to apply it in a broader scale and an industry wide scale. Um, and then I saw the organization ICSC and said, well, you know, it's got a long history and it's obviously well respected, but it also needed to change too, and it was a little long in the tooth and some in some of the things and thinking that it had. And so I thought it was an opportunity to, you know, to help change that too. And so I, I kind of got excited by the concept of, you know, one change from a personal perspective, just doing something different 
but secondly, just the disruption that you know was happening and the disruption that still needed to happen in some respects. You know, I I found that as a challenge that I was kind of excited about. Um, now I didn't see this happening, but none of us did. So we'll talk about that. But that that was you know those were the logics, and I'm glad I did it. Quite frankly, I mean I don't have any regrets about it. You know, I think you, know, you become a product of your experiences, and you grow from them, and and you evolve and mature in different ways. And so it's been a you know it's been a wonderful almost almost five years. Yeah, it's a it's about sixty plus year old organization. I think you're the fourth person, if my memory's right, to lead it. You've got what seventy thousand plus members globally, hundred plus countries. Like it's quite it's quite impressive. Let's talk about the retail as an asset class. So if I go back. I'm going to go back in time, but kind of come up today as well is, and again, going to the holiday season in 2013, it was like online, you know, online's taking over. And at that point in time, statistically, if you looked at it, it was, I think seven or 8% of all retail sales were online sales. You looked at catalog sales, because I did at that point in time, which peaked, I think in the eighties was just over 10% or around 10%. So we looked at it and said, or I looked at it and said, ah, it's really there's no material impact yet. It's a shift from one channel to another. Now you project out pre the current environment. You know, there was some talk that it might, I think NRF did, it was going to go to 12.4% in 2020, but it's still, you know, when you look at the perception of what happens is, is dramatically different. Now, you and I also know that when online retailers open physical stores, sales go up in the same trade area on their online channel. Some say three to five times. You saw the Macy's CFO, gosh, it was a while ago. You know, when they were closing stores, they would see the reverse correlation. Not quite as strong, right? But they would see the same thing. We know cost, customer acquisition costs are lower in physical stores and online. Like there's all these stats, right? But you know, there has been a shift actually, right? And 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 um, you know, you go to the day, although we could talk about COVID, but even pre-COVID, you look at Sears and Seratage and you know, you look at some of the um, bankruptcies or in some cases, retailers that were troubled where you had some of the REITs tended to be general growth or Brickford retailer, Simon injecting capital for other reasons. And I'd love to get your your perception of kind of the space and the challenges pre-COVID that it already had. Would be, would be great to sort of get your view uh, of that world. Sure. You know, I, I look, I think the industry was being disrupted. And, you know, I think that the uh, simplistic narrative was really about online versus physical retail. And I, I think that oversimplified what was happening in the industry. I think there was a bunch of different things that were happening. One was the impact of technology, not just online versus physical, just the impact of technology, right? I mean, consumers are just better informed. They walk around with their smartphones and they can get access to any information at any time, whether it's pricing information, customer reviews, et cetera. And of course, they're going to be better informed shoppers are going to be more cost conscious because they know whether they're overpaying or not. They can compare all those types of things. I think there were demographic shifts that were happening, um, you know, major demographic shifts that, you know, we now talk about a little bit as it relates to the pandemic and, and you know, different age groups and so forth. But the reality was you had a baby boomer generation that was the single biggest generation in human history transitioning out of their prime consumption years. You had now the biggest generation in human history, the millennials, who had not yet transitioned into their prime consumption years, and they did everything a lot later. And the generation that was left in the middle, our generation, uh, a lot smaller statistically. And so that, you know, sucked a lot of demand, you know, out of the retail channel. 
And secondly, you know, the millennials, they do everything later, right? They, they are starting to do the same things that everybody always did. They're, you know, getting married, they're having kids and they're buying homes. Um, but a lot of that, that activity was diminished too. And why is that important? Because we know those three big life events drives demand. It drives people buy a lot. Consumption happens throughout all of that. And then quite frankly, retail, you know, physical retail, not all physical retailers kept up with the times. You know, they hadn't invested in their store network. They hadn't invested in the experience. I think if you still look at those retailers that are incredibly successful, they have a value proposition that hinges upon, you know, merchandising and value and experience and price. And, you know, they understand who their customers are and how to serve them well. And those, you know, those retailers that have struggled lost their way and and they didn't lose their way because of the internet the internet exposed the fact that they were losing their way and brought in a whole nother of competition so that's what i thought the diagnosis was now i think as pre-pandemic you know i do think and i i kind of used the term retail renaissance that i thought what was happening was not a retail apocalypse, that there was a renaissance that was taking place. And renaissance does mean rebirth. It means something different. Um, it doesn't, it's not all Pollyannish. It does mean that there's, you know, disruption that's happening, but that I thought the industry was beginning, generally speaking, understanding that there was a, you know, particular sectors of the industry, particularly the department store sector that was particularly in distress, that it was starting to really, you know, compete in a better way uh, with online competitors and quite frankly they were becoming you know true omni-channel retailers and mentioned the halo report and they were starting to understand the value of the physical location and how to leverage that for the benefit of their digital channel and vice versa leveraging the digital channel for the virtue of their physical channel you know click and collect etc i believe that particular trend if anything you know, probably got accelerated during the pandemic. And I know we'll talk about this, but I think the value of having a physical network of stores, um, quite frankly, was validated um, in the pandemic. And really, as it as it related to, you know, solving the last mile, and you look at those retailers that did really well, and they did well, leveraging the physical and the digital world. And I think that kind of put the nail on the coffin of the concept that you got to be good in both channels. It makes sense. And then, you know, I think about, I was talking to Rick Clark at Brookfield and he said something and you're saying it also, he was very uh, direct about it. He said, when you see cycles like this, it, you don't see shifts. You see the acceleration of something that already started, right? Which is what you're saying as well. But let's talk about the U.S. though on, you always hear about the sheer amount of retail uh, in square footage basis per capita. And the U.S. is 20 plus. I've seen different numbers. I think it's 20, around 24. You look at Europe, in some cases, you've got, you know, we're five times or four times the size of retail square feet per capita than there. And so there's always been this debate, are we in aggregate truly over, over retailed? Should that number be 18 or 17? Or you hear different people say things. But, you know, what's your view of that? Is it, is it 24? Is that the right one? Is it, is it anyone's guess? Uh, you know, I honestly, I think right now it's hard to say, right? Because we don't know what it's going to look like coming out the other side. I, I, I think some things are true regardless of whether they're pre or post pandemic. One is the U.S. is a consumer driven economy. I mean, it always has been. And it's hard to see that changing anytime soon. And so I think it's 
you know, the comparison between the U.S. and any other country in the world is somewhat just by nature not fair because we're always going to be skewed more towards consumerism because that's who we are. That's in our DNA. That's a big part of our, you know, our history. I, I, I think the other part of that, particularly as you compare the U.S. to Europe, which is the other, you know, major mature kind of market that makes sense to benchmark ourselves against. You know, Europe's a very different market. It's much more urban. It's, uh, you know, U.S. is much more suburban. And I think that, again, back to this question of, you know, are we over-retailed? Maybe we were for the last, you know, last decade or so. Maybe we won't be for the next decade or so as millennials are now moving out to the suburbs. And that trend seems to be accelerating because of the pandemic. That was happening before that. But now you're starting to see, you know, people flock out to the suburbs again as suburban real estate is becoming pretty attractive. Well, if you're going to live out in the suburbs and you're going to have kids and they're going to go to school, you're going to go shopping. And all of a sudden, suburban real estate uh, and suburban retail may come quite a bit into vogue again. Now, does that put stress on another part of the market in the cities and so forth? Yeah, probably, perhaps. But that's not where the vast majority of the retail is. The vast majority of the retail is in, in the suburbs. and so. It's hard to know what the right number is, but, you know, I don't think, you know, we're off by factors that are huge. Uh, And I think the U.S. market is just different uh, than the rest of the world, much more suburban, much more consumer driven. And so I, I, I think time will tell. But I do think one of the trends that we have you know, learned from the rest of the world um, now that's gotten halted a little bit because of this was that a lot of the square footage. You know, we had devoted towards what I'll call traditional retail in the sense of department stores, apparel, and so forth. And we were beginning, you were starting to see some pretty dramatic shifts away from that towards experiential, towards food and beverage, et cetera. And I think that that, you know, now we'll see what happens with the focus on safety and so forth post-pandemic. But I think that is a um, that was a trend that was happening, you know, very very rapidly. And I often say that the phrase retail real estate somewhat misleads, you know, um, the nature of our industry because our industry is much more consumer real estate. I mean, it's it's just consumption, right? It's it's food and beverage, it's entertainment, theaters, and uh, all of that uh, services. Uh, if you look at the open air segment, such a huge percentage of the absolute number of tenants are service related. And, and so we may call it a retail center, but it's really a consumer real estate. Mm-hmm. And when people, but when people think retail, they think apparel. I mean, that's yeah. what I naturally think of. And I think it somewhat, you know, diminishes the scale of the industry and, and all that it has to offer. No, that's a good way of looking. You're, you're right in Europe because they would call it high street. Then you take London. Westfield's got those two properties that are beautiful. Um, Hammerson, I think, had kind of a mall-like property, but it was uh, it lived there actually for a while, so it was just dramatically different. But the other trend, even globally, but U.S., it's not just U.S., is this migration to urban. So I think you take the world's population today, it's something like 54%. And I think it was projected, at, it might be either 2025 or 2030 to go to, I think, 75%. And you find these mixed-use you know, combinations. So you're, it's interesting with a consumer comment. Like I think about Kimco is a good example, but there's others where, you know, they've got, I think Kimco might have a thousand, couple thousand units right now, multifamily. And they didn't two years ago, right? Or three years ago. And so you're seeing not just reactionary alternative uses, 
wasn't a defensive position. It was an offensive position, recognizing the value of, you know, something that's better mixed or mixed in a, in a different way. And I actually think that may accelerate because of now, because given the current environment, I guess we'll see, who knows, right? It's a wild card, but around the idea of having whatever services it may be, whether it's work or where I want to shop or uh, whatever I may do in closer proximity and some consistency. And so people traveling less distances for that. But the other one that's interesting to me on the core urban is, you, know, you look at Fifth Avenue, New York, the last couple of years, it's been rough. Now, Michigan Avenue, you'd say is equivalent to Chicago. Yeah, not so bad. Fifth Avenue has been an interesting one. So I think, you know, I think it's just probably outpriced itself at some level. So right that's just supply and demand. Yeah, yeah. people don't want to, you know, you do want to negotiate the price, so you let it sit there longer. I mean, yeah. part of it, right? They, they, without a doubt, we're not giving that away. So, but I, I think on your point on urban, though, you know, I, I think in some ways, you know, mixed use is a, you know, is a trend towards moving the city out to the suburbs in some yes. way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you people like the concept of live, work, and play. I go downstairs. There's everything I want. I don't, you know, and and to your point, the pandemic may just, you know, accelerate that. I like the comment that, you know, these things are not, these are just acceleration of trends that generally happen. And I, I think that's probably, my gut would tell me we would continue to see that trend and likely accelerate because people aren't going to want to necessarily, at least in the short term, there's going to be an apprehension about going back into Chicago and New York and taking mass transit in the way that people used to, at least the level. Cities always come back. I mean, we've gone back in human history, but just take five years, 10 years, whatever, to kind of get back to what it was, sense of equilibrium is. But in the short term, people may just enjoy experiencing kind of that city life in, a, in an easier, less stressful setting that's a little bit closer to home. And that's kind of mixed juice, right? I mean, these master plan communities that allow you to live, work, and play in one location. I, I do think that that um, will likely accelerate as part of this. Yeah, and it's definitely not a new trend, but it, it feels like it'll continue. So coming to today, I saw you had, you had said something, I think, on Twitter about one in four jobs being retail-related uh, jobs. I've been reading about some of the efforts. I use the word lobbying. I don't know if that's the right word, but relative to legislation to provide some form of relief to owners, sort of this trickle effect. There was the House, I believe. Um, had sent something to the Treasury in support of that. I think 100 members had signed that. And effectively, that was a CMBS market, which I think the number that's floating around is somewhere, it was a 540-something billion, right? So, and none of us want to repeat 2008, 2010. And it was brutal, right? And, and what happened to um, collective capital stack, right? The amount of money that changed hands. But anyway, I'd love for you to talk more around kind of those efforts and and how those are going, what those efforts are and initiatives that you're doing. I, I know you've been in the press quite a bit, you know, lately on that front. So, well, so I mean, first of all, I think we have to give some credit to the government in, in how quickly um, it acted around the CARES Act. And just to give a sense of scale, you know, the, the CARES Act is multiples of three to four times what TARP was, for example. So, and it passed, you know, on a bipartisan basis in a relatively quick period of time. And so that's pretty amazing. Um, I, I think there, I, and I think it's helped. You know, I think the PPP program, although flawed in implementation in some ways, has certainly helped. I think, you know, the Main Street Lending program will help. However, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. And um, 
obviously the stimulus, you know, the individual stimulus and, and support was needed and unemployment benefits were needed and it's helped. But we as an industry think a couple things. One, while a lot of the programs under the CARES Act help the tenant side of our membership base, very few things have helped directly help the owner developer side of our membership base. And quite frankly, commercial real estate in general, all forms, whether it's residential, whether it's retail, has fundamentally been left out of, of government support. You know, we clearly think that's a problem. Um, and as we go into negotiations on what we call COVID 4.0, which would be the fourth, you know, COVID relief bill, um, we think that, you know, there needs to be a more purposeful effort around commercial uh, real estate. Um, specifically to what you made reference, then I'll go back to COVID, the next relief bill. We do believe that there's an urgent need to do something around CMBS. You know, CMBS is just by nature, it is not a super flexible vehicle to get, you know, forbearance or some type of relief from the holders. And, you know, we have proffered to the government that this is a chance for them to relief to lean in and provide some type of relief package that would, you know, be able to be applied and still accommodate, you know, kind of the structure, leave the structure of the CMBS vehicles intact. Uh, 100 members of Congress have signed that letter. We're trying to get a similar um, number of folks to sign it to get bipartisan support in the Senate. There's an actual piece of legislation that's been introduced by Congressman Van Taylor at Texas. And so we're hopeful. Um, It will probably be part of this next relief package if it happens. as part of the relief, the next round of relief package, we have been advocating really from the start of this pandemic. You know, we thought it was really important for the government not to pick individual industries to say that, you know, we're going to save this industry and ignore this industry. We thought that it was important that they do something holistic. And, you know, at the time we said something like business interruption insurance, something that you know, was akin to that, that was backstopped by the U.S. government. They were the provider of the insurance. And if you were impaired in some way, they would help you with your ongoing operating expenses because fundamentally we were shutting down the U.S. economy. Uh, that is now transitioned into a phraseology called a recovery fund. Um, same kind of concept that if you've been impaired in some way that regardless of the size of the business, regardless of the industry, that the government would provide some level of support for your ongoing operating expenses. Uh, we've led a coalition of about 100 different industry groups called the America's Recovery Fund Coalition that's focused around that concept. Uh, you know, while the, there have been different bills that have been you know, introduced and not introduced and introduced and pulled. And that, that's the horse train that goes on. There's a couple of different things that are floating around Congress right now that are somewhat uh, aligned with that, that we think would be positive. One's called the Restart Program, which is uh, effectively what I just described. We think it should be grant-based there, you know, the Restart Program, which is um, a bipartisan Senate proposal, is really in the form of forgivable loans. So kind of like grants, but they're loans. And then if you do certain things, you get those forgiven. We'd like to see that bigger and broader and certainly make sure it includes commercial real estate. But that would be something that we, you know, we're, um, you know, supportive of. I think things that, you know, individual parts of the uh, tenant community that are focused on particularly restaurants, which have been hard hit, we're certainly supportive of those efforts as well. But, you know, our focus is primarily upon a recovery fund vehicle, CMBS relief, 
and then be supportive of things that are a broad swath of the business community. I, I really, you know, I, I think that the, um, you know, just looking at the industry, understanding what's happening, you know, amongst our members and in their uh, different communities, I, I do think the level of harm that's happened to the economy is greater than perhaps people understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really believe in America's innovation and ability to recover, but I do think this is, I think there's more government support that needs to happen. And Congress isn't quite there yet, at least in aligned in the need and the scale of it. Um, but there's still a few more weeks before they start in earnest around negotiations around this. So I think it's got to be hard going back where there's a natural evolution. You know, we're talking about the retailer side for a second. And of course, you know, I think since early May, seven or eight pretty significant announcements that people, you know, retailers filing for bankruptcy. And you could have said they should have, it should have already happened. In some cases, there's some still in theory alive that's surprising that it hasn't. But we have that with owner and operators too, right? Without fairness, not for me to say who who is or isn't, but, you know, how those funds get allocated is tricky because obviously you don't want them wasted if someone is already kind of in theory down the path of of closing shop you know it, it it's got to be complicated and how people apply and what gets funded and trying to make the best use of the funds i guess just like what's happened already even with the payroll protection plan you know it's mostly good and you get a couple that isn't so great but overall right you end up in a much more positive note well, look right? at the broader group good and my philosophy on this has always been that look you know it goes back to not picking winners and losers and that you know the government role in this ought to be first and foremost to try to stabilize the economy as much as possible and to maintain jobs as much as possible. I think secondly that you know ideally you want to get every business that went into the pandemic to get them when they come out of the pandemic at least as close to what they were like going into the pandemic. So yes the market ought to determine winners and losers that's capitalism. But the government made a decision, and I'm not arguing with the decision. Obviously, it was the right thing from a health and safety perspective. But there was a decision made that was artificial to market conditions that shut the economy down. And in fairness, you really ought to place businesses in as close to a similar place as you can when we exit the crisis as they were when they entered into it, knowing that nobody's going to be back at that particular mm-hmm. level. Some will be better off, quite frankly. Um, because they've given them a competitive advantage, then we'll be worse off. Um, but if you can, if you have that element of fairness, and it's only fair that the market should decide, not a government action. Yeah, that's fair. That makes sense. So I'm going to ask you to predict the future, which is probably completely unfair. But you go, you got to go three or five years out. Yeah. Is it dramatically different? Is it slightly different? Like how do you how do you sort of look at the world? And the organization for ICSC, like what is it focused on different priorities or where does it head? I think, first of all, for the industry, and I'll talk about ICSC. Look, I think the industry fundamentally, whether you go, you go back a thousand years to, you know, marketplaces and so forth. I mean, the people that win in those cases, right, they have the best goods, best prices, best service. I mean, that's all, I think that's still going to be the case. I think there's some things that have, you know, accelerated that are here to stay, you know. Uh, curbside pickup or park and pickup, whatever terminology you want to use, but that leveraging of physical and digital, I think is here to stay and in a big time. Um, 
I do think, you know, trends like moving healthcare into retail and so forth are here to stay because of the convenience aspect of it. Uh, and I think they will be accelerated um, because people's, you know, sense of convenience. Uh, I think value um, will be a big part of it because while it was already a big part going into the pandemic, I think people's sense of, you know, price sensitivity will only increase because of the, you know, the level of disruption that's happened in the economy. And we've all become a little more cost conscious as a result of that. I think those types of things will, you know, be be even more important than they were pre-pandemic, but they've existed before. They'll just be more important. I think the things that won't change though, that look, good retailers are those that offer, and properties, so those that offer an experience, a sense of, you know, a comforting place, um, good merchandise, good value. I don't, I don't think that's gonna, gonna change. I think from an industry standpoint in ICSC, I, I do think we have a challenge as an industry and I think the biggest challenge we face, quite frankly, um, outside of just competing with all the different things that are happening um, in, from a technology standpoint and will continue to happen, is talent. You know, we had an issue in the industry of kind of a gap. Uh, as you look at millennials as a percentage of the working population in the United States versus the percentage of the working population in retail real estate, it, it, was, a, it was a huge gap. It was like a 10% mm-hmm. gap. And I think that, that that probably, given the trauma that's happened to the industry and some of the dislocation that will take place, will only become more acute. And uh, I think one of you know ICSC's most important priorities over the next five to 10 years is really working with the members to create you know, a new pipeline for the industry, both of young talent coming in the industry diversity coming in the industry. We have a long way to go as it relates to diversity. And so I think ICSC can help lead those efforts, pulling uh, services and programs together that can help the industry and help its members uh, deal with that talent gap, whether it's internship programs, mentorship programs, um, whether it's helping, you know, partnering with different organizations to advance diversity in the industry. That will be something we lean into really, really heavily. Outside of doing the things that we, you know, have always been known to do, I think you'll see a huge, I know you'll see, at least as long as I'm sitting in the seat, a huge emphasis upon talent and building the talent pipeline and a next generation of talent in the industry. Well, we're getting near the end. I can't thank you enough uh, for the time and actually for what you've done for the industry. And I know you've done a lot outside as well. And so in part of my research, obviously your involvement with the Covenant House International, we have to do a separate podcast to your award in 2012, because I think you shared a stage with Bon Jovi, George Harrison's wife, and uh, Laura and Barbara Bush. You got to do good research. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations, by the way. But that had to be some night in New York that I... uh, I wish I was a part of. But anyway, I want to thank you again. Wish you the best of luck. Uh, appreciate the input and hope our paths cross again. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it.